This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study today, we're going to go to the Lord in prayer and ask his guidance and direction on our time in his word. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the fact that you have revealed yourself to us. We're thankful that we have your word before us. We pray that we not take this lightly, but that we might be uh, strengthened and stimulated, motivated to pick up our Bibles, to read them, to study them, and to make what we read a vital part of our life. Father, as we study today, we begin a new a new study in the life of our Lord through the eyes of Matthew. And we pray that as we look at this gospel in its entirety today, that it might give us a fresh look and understanding of the gospel of Matthew and his particular approach, that we might have greater insight into the mission and ministry of our Lord. And we pray that you would guide and direct us this morning, that we might be challenged by the things that we learn. We pray in Christ's name, amen. It's been my desire for some time to do a series on the life of Christ. The life of Christ is a little bit daunting because not only do we have to deal with just the the incredibly packed three years of ministry of our Lord, but there are certain scholarly and academic issues that are quite complex that deal with an understanding and interpretation of, of the Gospels. Some of those things we're going to get into in the coming weeks. Some are a little uh, abstract, uh, too much so for a Sunday morning. And uh, But nevertheless, I'll be presenting at least some insight and overview into some of those particular issues. Also, as we get into a study of the Gospels, we often focus on the different uh, different discourses of Jesus. There are extended teaching episodes in the life of Christ. There's five in the Gospel of Matthew. In fact, what we'll see is that teaching, being a disciple and becoming a disciple, which is a word that simply means to be a student, or learner, so major emphasis in Matthew. We'll see that one of Matthew's uh, purposes in writing this is to teach and instruct. It has a very solid uh, emphasis on on teaching and instruction. In fact, that word disciple is primarily used in the Gospel of Matthew as opposed to to some of the other uh, other Gospels. There are four Gospels: Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John is the distinct gospel. I taught through it some 15 years ago when I first uh, went to Preston City Bible Church to teach there. Uh, since then, I've done a lot of growing, maturing in my understanding of the word, theology, other things of that nature. 
And so I want to tackle the first of the what's called the synoptic gospels. It's called a synoptic gospel from the same basic word like synonym in that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar to one another. Uh, they don't say exactly the same thing. There are certain episodes, certain verses that are identical, some that are different, and each approaches the life of Christ from a different perspective. We read in the Gospel of John that uh, if that, that Jesus did many more works and taught many other things, and if they were written down, not all the books in the world could contain them. And so when we look at the fact that there's this tremendous array of information about the life of Christ and his teaching, we realize that each one of these gospel writers came to that material with a different emphasis. Each gospel writer wanted to emphasize a distinct aspect of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ so that... Uh, Matthew comes to present Jesus as the son of David, the messianic king. Mark comes to show that Jesus is the servant of the Lord. Luke comes to show that Jesus is the son of man, tracing his genealogy all the way back to Adam rather than as, as Abraham does, I mean as Matthew does just to Abraham. And then John presents Jesus as the son of God. There's no contradiction between the four uh, for Gospels, but they each present a different case. They're not biographies, per se. They are, uh, they are divine, as it were, editorials on who Jesus is, each presenting him from this different vantage point. One of the things that I've been concerned about is, is from a conversation I had almost 20 years ago now, uh, listening to some other believers talking about uh, the Gospels and expressing the idea that they understood the life of Moses, uh, they understood the life of Paul, they had a fairly good understanding of the life of David, but when it came to Jesus, they just felt like they were lost. So one of my goals in this series is not to drill down. We will do some drilling down, of course, but not to drill down in depth in a lot of issues because I've, I don't want to get lost in, 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 the, in the details and the minutia. I, want to, I don't want to lose the, the uh, forest because we're taking too much time analyzing all of the leaves. And especially in uh, lessons like the one this morning, I want to give people an overview, try to scrunch all the information down so that we can walk away thinking, okay, I have a basic comprehension of at least what Matthew is all about, and what the, how the life of Christ is basically laid out. Now, we're not going to see that as much in Matthew as we would if we were studying Luke, because Luke is primarily, of the, of the three synoptic Gospels, Luke is the only one that is written chronologically. We come to an uh, approach to something like a biography, which a lot of people mistakenly think the Gospels are, and we think in terms of uh, how biography and history has developed uh, in in our culture, and we look at it only in terms of chronology, whereas the approach of Matthew and Mark and John to some degree are less chronological. There are sections in Matthew that are chronological. For example, the first uh, first uh, 
seven chapters are basically chronological, although five through seven is a teaching chapter. They're basically chronological, but then uh, subsequent episodes are not, because what Matthew is doing is he is demonstrating a, a thesis statement, and that is that Jesus is indeed the Messiah from the Old Testament who was prophesied and promised, and he fits those credentials. And he came to Israel, and he offered himself as their messianic king, and he was rejected. He offered the kingdom which had been promised and foretold in the Old Testament, and they rejected the king and the kingdom. And so that king kingdom has now been postponed and something unexpected and previously unrevealed has been inserted between the time of the first century and the time when Jesus will come and once again offer the kingdom to Israel, and the nation will at that time realize uh, the, the kingdom of the Messiah in the future. And so Matthew is writing... Uh, this this gospel for that purpose. The author Matthew, we'll get into some of these details a little more uh, next time. I just want to give you a little basic orientation to the background. Is that Matthew is also known as Levi, his Aramaic name. He's the son of Alphaeus, so his name was Levi ben Alphaeus. And he was uh, not well accepted by his peers because he was a tax collector. He was from Capernaum which was a uh, city that Jesus made uh, his home. As a tax collector, he was considered to be both a thief and a traitor by his peers. Yet by God's grace, he was selected to be one of the 12 disciples of Jesus, and his gospel is at the front of the New Testament. He wrote this gospel. It's important to understand this. Whenever we read anything in the New Testament is to understand who is, or anything in the Bible, who it's being written to and why, because that helps us to understand the emphases that are there in the Scripture. He wrote his gospel to Jewish Christians. These are Jewish Christians living in Judea before the destruction of the southern kingdom in A.D. 70 and the destruction of the second temple and the uh, dispersion of the Jews into the uh, uh, further into the diaspora. Matthew may have been one of the earliest uh, books of the New Testament written. Uh, popular scholarship, uh, influenced by liberal presuppositions, often puts Mark as the first gospel. That has been debunked by a number of excellent studies, and the traditional view has always been that Matthew was the first gospel. I believe that, following the principle laid down by Paul uh, in, in, in uh, Romans, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, that that the uh, that Matthew's the first gospel is addressed to Jewish Christians living in Judea before the destruction of the temple, and designed to explain to them and help strengthen them in their understanding of who Jesus is as the Messianic King, his offer of the kingdom to Israel the rejection of the kingdom, and how the postponement of that kingdom has now led to a new era, a new what we call a dispensation known as the church age where God is working to bring together a new people of God that is comprised of Jew and Gentile alike. 
and that this era will end, that will be followed by a time of judgment and discipline uh, known as the tribulation period, seven-year tribulation period, or the time of uh, Jacob's wrath, and that will end with the second coming of Jesus as the Messiah when Israel turns to him, accepting him and inviting him to return to deliver them, and at which time he will establish his literal, physical, geopolitical kingdom on the earth located in uh, in Jerusalem. So Matthew is written to Jewish believers to encourage them in terms of what God's plan is in history, but also to challenge them as those who will be future participants, as we all will as church-age believers, in the administration and the of the kingdom, of the messianic kingdom, ruling and reigning with Christ, that we are in, a, in training now in preparation for that, uh, for that future role when we return with our Lord uh, to reign. And so the presentation of, of Matthew has as part of its focus in challenging us to living the, the kind of righteous life that can only be produced in us through God the Holy Spirit. So Matthew is written, first of all, to convince the Jewish audience that uh, Jesus is the Messiah uh, in whom they have believed and to re- give them the evidence they need to show that Jesus was indeed who he claimed to be the promised son of David. Secondly, it's written to explain why the kingdom was postponed despite the fact that the king had already arrived. And so Matthew traces that kingdom plan uh, throughout this particular gospel. And then third, it explains God's interim program, how he has, why he has postponed the kingdom and what the new, the sons of the kingdom will experience. This is seen in the parables in Matthew chapter 13. As part of his sub-theme, we see an inclusion of the Gentiles. Uh, from the very, uh, from the very beginning. So now we, I want to do a, what I call a flyover, uh, orientation to the Gospel of Matthew and in the next 30 to 40 minutes cover the entire Gospel of Matthew. Matthew's focus is on Jesus as the, uh, King of the Jews. And when we look at the overall outline and structure of Matthew, I wanted to keep this as simple as I could at the beginning. Six basic sections to Matthew. The first ten chapters, we have the presentation of the Messiah, the presentation of the Messiah, including his birth and the inauguration of his ministry when John the Baptist baptizes him and then uh, the initial phase of his ministry. This leads to the crisis point in his conflict with the Pharisees and his rejection uh, official rejection by the Pharisees in chapters in chapter 12. Following that, we have uh, eight chapters focusing on uh, the Messiah's instruction on the Revised Kingdom uh, program, and chapters 13 through 20. This is instruction. There's a shift here in the first. Ten chapters in Jesus' instruction. It's public. It's an appeal to the Jews as a whole. It is focused on the house of Israel, not on the Gentiles. After the rejection by the Pharisees in chapter 13, then what we have is a focus on training and preparing the disciples 
for their future ministry in the coming church age. There are three basic warning passages where he tries to prepare them for his coming uh, crucifixion, uh, death, burial, and resurrection. <clears throat> so this leads to the fourth section, chapter, the end of chapter 20 through 23, his final presentation. This is the Palm Sunday uh, when he enters into Jerusalem and the official and final uh, rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. Uh, this is followed by uh, uh, questions by his disciples regarding when uh, the future restoration will take place. And in what is known as the Olivet Discourse, in, uh, on the Mount of Olives, Jesus describes what will, what is entailed in his future return in Matthew chapter 24 to 25. This is followed by uh, chapters 26 to 28, the crucifixion, burial, and the resurrection of the Messiah. Now, the book begins with in chapter 1 with the uh, story about chapter 1 and chapter 2 with the story of the birth of the Messiah. This is introduced in the first verse, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Note that David is placed before Abraham because the emphasis in Matthew is going to be on Jesus as the son of David, the rightful heir to the Davidic throne, the one referred to by uh, God in the Davidic covenant, and that he is the fulfillment of that as the me- uh, promised messianic king. So the genealogy demonstrates his descent from David, uh, his descent from Abraham as fulfillment of both the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants. One thing to note is that four women are included in his genealogy. No women are included in the genealogy in Luke chapter 3, but four are listed here. They are women of somewhat scandalous past. They are all Gentiles, and this foreshadows the inclusion of the Gentiles uh, in God's kingdom uh, in the future. Uh, starting in verses 18 through 25, we have a reference to and description of the virgin conception and birth as fulfillment of the Isaiah prophecy that the Messiah would come through a virgin conception and be called uh, Emmanuel, a quote from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. To further show the messianic credentials of, the, uh, of Jesus of Nazareth, uh, in chapter 2, Matthew talks about how he is honored by the Magi. The Magi were a group of Parthian uh, elites who were responsible for uh, identifying and, and elevating the kings in Parthia. And they're Gentiles, and so their inclusion here, again, foreshadows uh, recognition and acceptance by the Gentiles. Notice that the Gentiles honor him as king, but the king of uh, the king of the Jews, Herod, rejects him. And again, we see we're going to see this throughout Matthew. The Gentiles respond to Jesus as Messiah, whereas the Jews do not. Uh, in the midst of that story, uh, Matthew informs us that Jesus is born in Bethlehem, and that that too is a fulfillment of a messianic prophecy from Micah five two. The opposition from Herod also indicates his messianic credentials as it goes back to Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 
when there is the prophecy that the seed of the woman represented, I mean, the seed of the woman here is Jesus, is going to meet opposition from the seed of the serpent as indicated by uh, King Herod and his uh, virulent opposition to uh, Jesus to the extent that he seeks to, to kill him by killing every infant in Bethlehem. As we go from the opening uh, narrative, we also see the flight into Egypt, the uh, return from Egypt, and Joseph and Mary making their home in Nazareth, and Matthew informs us that all of this fits into patterns revealed in the Old Testament, again affirming the messianic credentials of Jesus of Nazareth. And then we skip over his childhood, and the next time we are... uh, uh, introduced to Jesus. It's in the context of his cousin's ministry. We learn that uh, John the Baptist is actually his cousin only from the Gospel of Luke. And all of a sudden we're introduced to what takes place under the ministry of John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the uh, forerunner of the Messiah. He fits the pattern as prophesied in the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, again fitting the, the messianic credential that there would be one who would come before Jesus, who would before the Messiah, who would announce uh, his coming. So starting with this, uh, with John the Baptist, Matthew begins to trace the offer, the rejection, and the postponement of the kingdom throughout Matthew. Notice John's message in Matthew 3, 2 is, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He is addressing his Jewish audience in terms of the Old Testament promised and prophesied kingdom and that if they are going to realize this kingdom and the kingdom uh, blessings that God promised, then they must first be aligned rightly with God. God had promised unconditionally to Abraham that his descendants would uh, be more numerous than the stars in the heaven and that through all the nations, all the nations would be blessed through him. Through David, he promised an eternal king on an eternal throne with an eternal kingdom. But realization of that kingdom and the blessings was dependent upon an obedient generation. And uh, in the Old Testament, uh, there were many times too often that Israel was apostate. And so in order for the kingdom to come, the generation at the time of the offering had to respond positively uh, to the offer of the kingdom and be in line with God's uh, plan and God's uh, righteousness. This is why uh, Matthew chapter 5 through 7, it fits at the very beginning, which is the Sermon on the Mount, fits at the very beginning of, of, of Matthew. So it's showing the kind of righteousness required for entry into the kingdom. Now then, following the uh, announcement by the forerunner of the Messiah, we have the inauguration of the Messiah's ministry. This is in Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17, when Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist. This is a unique baptism because it wasn't John's baptism, which was a baptism related to repentance, because Jesus didn't need to repent. Jesus was uh, sinless and perfect. His baptism was unique because it was the sign of his, the, the inauguration of his ministry 
as as the Messiah. And so that is covered in Matthew three thirteen through 17. Immediately after the public identification of Jesus at that baptism, for remember at that baptism, he is not only authenticated by John as a prophet, but he is authenticated by God who announces from the heavens, behold, uh, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then a dove who is a manifestation of God, the Holy Spirit, descended upon Jesus. And so there's this public recognition, validation by both the prophet and by God himself to inaugurate the ministry of the Messiah. Immediately after that, he is led by the Holy Spirit. In Matthew chapter uh, 4, verse 1, he's led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, the purpose for this is to, at the beginning, to test and show the qualifications of Jesus as the Messiah, that unlike Adam, he is not going to yield to the temptation of Satan and that he is going to pass these three temptations with perfect uh, perfect score. He's, he's tempted in the areas of the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, and the lust of the eyes, as seen in first, as described in 1 John 2, uh, 17. He successfully endures this temptation, according to Matt, uh, Hebrews chapter 4, 15, which qualifies him uh, as the uh, perfect uh, Messiah who is qualified, has the kind of righteousness necessary to be uh, the king of Israel. He responds to each of the tests by quote, quoting from Deuteronomy, parrying the temptations of Satan by quoting from Scripture, showing the sufficiency of Scripture in order to handle temptation. Jesus doesn't handle the temptation by relying upon his deity. He handles it by relying upon the word of God and the tools that God has given him. So this encourages us in that we don't have to yield to temptation. Uh, we can resist temptation on the basis of the word of God and the spirit of God. The last part of chapter uh, 4 describes the beginning of his ministry. He, had, he initiates his, his ministry by, uh, uh, with announcing a, uh, he goes back up to uh, Galilee and he is announcing the same basic uh, message as John the Baptist. In Matthew chapter 4 verse 17, uh, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's the offer of the kingdom. In verse 23 of the chapter, we read, Jesus went about all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching or proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of diseases among the people. You have to pay attention to those three participles because this describes what's going to come in the next few chapters. Jesus is going to be teaching in Matthew chapter 5 through 7 on the kind of righteousness necessary for the kingdom of God. And then in chapters 8 and 9, he is going to be healing uh, all kinds of sickness and disease, demonstrating his authority over every realm of creation as is, as befits the messianic king as foretold in the prophets. As we come to Matthew chapter 5, we see his, his instruction there uh, to his disciples regarding the standards for kingdom righteousness. The key idea is really presented in Matthew chapter 5 verse 20. In Matthew chapter 5 verse 20, we read, 
For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. His point is that that in terms of human viewpoint, the righteousness of the Pharisees was pretty high. They seemed like extremely moral, religious people. How could anybody be more moral, more religious than the Pharisees? And yet Jesus is saying human righteousness isn't good enough. Uh, it has to be uh, qualify with the righteous, the perfect righteousness of God. And so the Mosaic Law, I mean, uh, the Sermon on the Mount is basically an exposition on the kind of righteousness that is necessary to have to enter into the kingdom and which will be uh, exhibited in the lives of those who are referred to as the sons of the kingdom, those who have entered into the kingdom. We have a brief outline here of uh, nine different or eight different things that are covered in the Sermon on the Mount. We have the Beatitudes in verses 3 through 12. Then he talks in verses uh, 13 through 16 on the influence of the sons of the kingdom. This is followed by a lengthy uh, discourse in, from verses 17 through 48 where he describes the relationship of the kingdom to the law. Basically what we see here is Jesus giving the divine viewpoint interpretation of the Mosaic law and divine righteousness in contrast to the legalistic view and the superficial view that was presented by the, uh, by the Pharisees. Uh, the relationship of the kingdom to public and private righteousness is described in the first 18 verses of chapter 6. Then in chapter uh, 6, 19 to 34, the relationship of the kingdom to wealth. Uh, then the relationship of the kingdom to judging in 7, 1 through 6. The kingdom righteousness, uh, the kingdom righteousness can be received by prayer and exhibited in conduct is seen in 7, 7 through 12. And then a comparison of Christ's teaching on righteousness with that of the Pharisees comes across in 7.13 through 27. And so chapters 5, 6, and 7 are a great discourse on the kind of righteousness required uh, for entry into the kingdom. It can't be human righteousness. It can be, it's a righteousness that can only be given uh, by, by God. And then in chapters 8 and 9, We've seen the teaching. Jesus went about Galilee teaching and also healing. Chapter 8, uh, we have described uh, the authority of the Messiah, and there are ten aspects to these chapters uh, that we're t- t- taught about. First of all, he has authority over disease in verses 1 through 17, and we see there that he heals a leper. That was thought by the Pharisees to be one of the most significant signs of the Messiah. He also heals a centurion's son. He is responsible for healing Peter's mother-in-law. He heals many who come to him that are demon-possessed. And Matthew makes the point that all of this is to show what was prophesied by Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah 53.4, that Jesus is the one who has authority over, over disease. He has authority over his disciples to call out disciples and to describe the qualifications of a disciple in 8.18 through 22. 
in 8.23 to 27, when he stills the waves on the Sea of Galilee in a storm, he's demonstrating his authority over creation. And fourth, we see his authority over demons as he casts out demons. The word exorcism is never used for the work of Jesus and the disciples, only the term cast out because it demonstrates his authority. That's seen in 8.28 to 34. He has the authority to forgive sins as seen by his healing the paralyzed man in chapter 9, verses 1 through 8, which also takes most of these events take place in and around Capernaum. He has the authority to forgive the worst sinners. The example is the fact that he is calling Matthew to be a disciple for which he is criticized by the uh, Pharisees because he's hanging out with tax collectors who are viewed as thieves and with prostitutes. Uh, seventh, we see his authority to usher in a new dispensation because he is showing that, that the difference between the way in which John handled things, the way he handles things with his disciples. And eighth, we see his authority to restore health and life as he restores a um, young, girl, uh, young girl to life and also restores uh, a woman to health in chapter... Uh, chapter 9, verses 18 through 26. He then restores sight. Excuse me. I got, let me back up here. Okay. He has authority over to restore health and to restore life in 9, 18 through 26. And then we also see that he restores sight and speech to these two blind men and then to a mute man at the uh, end of chapter 9. And this indicates the fact that that these blind men see who Jesus is, even though they're blind, but the Jews don't see who Jesus is, even though they're observing all of his words and works. This increases his opposition, and we see a foreshadowing of the ultimate rejection of Jesus in chapter 9, verse 34, that the Pharisees said he casts out demons by the ruler of demons. And then we see a transition starting to take place in, uh, at the end of Matthew 9 and Matthew 10, where Jesus uh, is sending out his disciples to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. They're not to go to the Gentiles, but it indicates that this message is restricted, the message of the kingdom going to the Jews. In Matthew 9.35, we read, Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. Notice how this this basically repeats what we saw uh, earlier in Matthew chapter 4. And this provides a, uh, uh, ties these sections together, uh, in terms of Jesus demonstrating who he was as the, as the, uh, as the Messiah. And then in chapter 10, he gives instructions to his disciples there to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as they go there to preach what? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Same message as John the Baptist in Jesus. And they, too, have received delegated authority to heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, and cast out demons. And this is to indicate their authority from Jesus that they represent the uh, the Messiah. So what we've seen up to this point is that as... Uh, as Matthew is addressing his audience, he is reminding them of the credentials of Jesus 
as the Messiah and that he is the one who demonstrated that he fulfilled all of those prophecies and uh, and credentials as seen in the Old Testament. Not only do the early events in Jesus' life point to his identity, the, the, the events in chapters 1 through 4, but so does the fulfillment of his ministry of preaching the kingdom, teaching, and healing. So this lays the foundation now for understanding what will happen in the next two chapters, which is the rejection of the Messiah. Uh, there are three things we ought to highlight here. First of all, John the Baptist, the Messiah's forerunner, is described in chapter 11 as having doubts now about Jesus' identity. John's been in prison about a year, and so uh, now he's wondering, because he has the same misconception about the kingdom that many Jews did, that it would be a political kingdom rather than uh, spiritual, at, uh, that it would be a political kingdom at that point rather than uh, first and foremost a kingdom established on a spiritual foundation. And so he's wondering, is Jesus really the Messiah? Jesus answers by pointing to his credentials pointing to John's own unique role as a prophet. Now, if John isn't sure who Jesus is, and John is Jesus' first cousin, and John heard all the miraculous stories about the birth, and John saw what happened when Jesus, when he baptized Jesus, and the God the Father spoke from heaven, and uh, a dove descended, the Holy Spirit d- descended in the form of a dove. If John saw all of that, and he's got doubts, what hope is there that Israel's going to respond? See, it's more foreshadowing, preparing us for the fact that it doesn't look too good in terms of Israel's response. Then in uh, chapter 11, verses 16 through 30, Matthew shows how Jesus' messianic claims are rejected by the various cities in Jerusalem. Uh, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum all reject Jesus in contrast to the Gentile cities of Tyre, Sidon, and comparison to Sodom, uh, hypothetically, where Jesus says, if the signs done in you, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum were done in Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom, they would have been, uh, they would have repented long ago. The permanent break comes in chapter 12. J- Jesus, uh, heals on the Sabbath. He, he and his disciples go through grain fields and pick grain on the Sabbath. Uh, this just further inflames the Pharisees. And then when he casts out a demon on the Sabbath, then they accuse him of doing this in the power of Beelzebul, who's just basically another uh, term they use for the chief of the demons. So what happens in Matthew 12:24? when the Pharisees heard it, they said, this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. And Jesus' response to them is, therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven men. Now this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is misinterpreted by most people. It can't be, it's a historically defined incident. It is the rejection of the testimony of the Holy Spirit to the identity of the Messiah at that point in the incarnation. Can't happen today. You can't do it. I can't do it. Nobody since, since, uh, about this event in AD 32 uh, 31 or 32 took place. And because of that, Jesus is announcing a, an inevitable judgment 
upon Israel. He says, any, verse 32, anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age, when's that age? That's still in the age of Israel, or in the age to come. Age to come is talking about the church age. And so what he's indicating here is that that the destruction of Jerusalem is inevitable. Now, the potential is that even after that, because in Acts there is a return to the proclamation of the gospel and uh, holding out the hope of repentance to Israel, is that after the destruction of, of Jerusalem, that, that now that that's inevitable as a judgment on this generation, that if they, the, the, the next generation were to respond positively to the uh, message of the, the gospel message of the kingdom, then it would change what happened immediately after the destruction of Jerusalem. In other words, we would have had a very short church age. That is not what happened, but that's what the, the potential was at least. Then in verses, or chapters 13 through 20, we come to the Messiah's instruction about the revised kingdom program. Uh, now that the kingdom has been rejected by the leaders, Jesus shifts gear and he focuses on training and preparing the disciples for what will happen. What comes first is eight parables on the mysteries of the kingdom. Eight parables on the mysteries of the kingdom and there, this is not a mystery form of the kingdom. Literally, it's the, the mysteries of the kingdom. And the word mysteries, as it's used in Scripture, refers to previously unrevealed uh, teaching or instruction about the kingdom. And the reason that this is now you have new revelation coming is because with the postponement of the kingdom, there's going to be new revelation about what will take place between this time and the final uh, establishment of the kingdom. And so these uh, eight parables here describe uh, aspects of the present or current age. It is not a kingdom age. There's no spiritual form of the kingdom or mystery form of the kingdom. The kingdom is always a Davidic messianic kingdom that's literal on the earth, and it does not come in uh, to effect until the uh, millennial kingdom. So in the peril, uh, parable of the sower, Jesus informs them that there will be varying responses to the gospel in the intervening age. The second parable is the parable of the wheat and the tares, which indicates that during this time it will be difficult to discern between those who are saved and those who are unsaved in the visible, uh, in the visible church during the church age. The third parable, the parable of the mustard seed, teaches that in, during the church age, Christendom will have numeric and geographic expansion from an extremely small beginning. The fifth parable, the one related to earth and treasure, teaches that Christ came to purchase Israel, but Israel remained in unbelief and will remain in unbelief throughout most of the church age until the end of the age. The pearl of great price refers to Christ's death that redeems members of the church throughout the church age. The parable of the dragnet teaches that there will be a coexistence of the righteous and the unsaved throughout the church age. And then finally, in the last couple of verses, the householder, the parable of the householder teaches that these previously unrevealed truths must be added to 
previously revealed truth. In other words, there's the, the new is added to the old to understand God's plan and purpose. So then we get an illustration of why the interim age is necessary, starting in chapter 13, verse 53 through 1412. Uh, Jesus is rejected at Nazareth, and John the Baptist is beheaded. And so we see continuing opposition and a continue, continuing negative warning indicating that, that uh, this rejection is increasing in its intensity. Starting in chapter 14, uh, verse 13, uh, through chapter 20, verse 28, the Messiah begins to train his disciples for the interim age. The basic issue in all of these episodes, from the feeding of the 5,000, the walking on the water, are all designed to teach the disciples that if they are going to be successful in their future ministry, they have to learn to walk by means of faith and trusting in God to provide for them and to supply their needs. There are examples where Jesus sends them out to heal. This isn't public like in the first episodes. Now it's private. And he is training them so that because they will be uh, carrying out these signs and wonders as part of their future ministry during the apostolic era as described in Acts. Throughout this time, the Pharisees continue to attack Jesus and his disciples, and Jesus defends them in chapter 15, uh, verses 1 through 20. And these events are used in order to teach the, the, the disciples uh, the difference between the grace of God and the legalism of the, of the Pharisees. In Genesis chapter 15, uh, the emphasis is on the that there must be an internal transformation, uh, that the Pharisees uh, are hypocrites, it's merely external, but there has to be an internal transformation. So once again, reinforcing the uh, fact that the righteousness that God demands is different from that which is produced through human effort and self-righteousness. There's an event in Genesis 15:22 to 28 when a Canaanite woman uh, is healed. This is designed to teach the disciples that there's an expansion of God's plan to the Gentiles, and we see more and more of a response from Gentiles uh, during this uh, period of time. When we get down to uh, chapter 16, we see the great statement, a great identification of Jesus as the Messiah in verse, uh, verses 13 through 20. Uh, Jesus uh, turns to his disciples and asks, and this is in the center of a Gentile area in, in uh, Caesarea Philippi. He says, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? There are 32 uses of the title Son of Man in Matthew. And this is a messianic title. So again, by reiterating this title again and again, Matthew is reinforcing the fact that Jesus is the, the Messiah. At this point, Peter steps up and says, well, some people say John the Baptist, some Elijah. And Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. In, in Hebrew, this is the Messiah. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responds by saying, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. 
And then Jesus says that it's on this rock, this statement, this understanding of him as Messiah, that he will build his church, future tense, indicating there's no church up to that point. It's all all yet future. And uh, he identifies the authority of the apostles after that. And then immediately he gives the first of three uh, statements regarding the fact that he will go to Jerusalem where he will uh, suffer and be killed and be raised the third day. They're not too happy with that. They really don't understand it. But Jesus understands that having uh, announced now that the kingdom is being postponed, they do need a little encouragement. And so the episode in chapter 17 focuses on uh, the Mount of Transfiguration where there's a foretaste of the kingdom given to James, John, and Peter. And again, there's a, there's a heavenly affirmation of who Jesus is. In verse 5, God the Father speaks from the heavens, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Uh, listen to him. And so uh, chapter 17 continues this focus on uh, Jesus as the Messiah. He continues to give a warning about the fact that he is going to uh, he is going to go to Jerusalem and die in verses 22 and 23. The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and the third day will raise him up. Uh, by the time we get into chapter uh, 18, there's a fourth discourse here, a lengthy discourse in chapter 18. He uses several parables to teach about the uh, about forgiveness and about the grace of God. And so he's continuing to train the disciples to rely upon the grace of God and God's grace provision for them in future ministry. We come to chapter 19. The Pharisees ask him questions about uh, marriage and divorce, and Jesus uses this opportunity to teach the uh, disciples that authority is not in the, the teaching of the Pharisees, but in going back to the original scriptural uh, revelation. In some, as we get through these chapters, we see that uh, that Jesus trains his disciples, prepares them for his his future death and for their future ministry in the upcoming church age. Uh, Matthew's Jewish audience is being reminded that they do not need to reject this new ministry and outreach to the Gentiles, uh, even though it does not directly involve the established ministry of the kingdom that's been postponed, and he's preparing them for that as well. We come to chapters 20 to 23. We see the formal presentation of the king as he enters into Jerusalem. Uh, the crowds do not really understand who he is. They refer to him in 2111 as Jesus the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. But just prior to that, as Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, he goes through Jericho and two blind men uh, cry out to him and say, have mercy on us, O Lord Son of David. So once again, it illustrates the spiritual blindness of Israel. The two physically blind men understand he's the son of David, but the uh, the Jews still refer to him as Jesus, a prophet. So that even though they're accepting him when he comes in on the on 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 Palm Sunday, they don't understand his role as Messiah. They're not accepting that. Uh, as a result of that and the conflict, Jesus brings judgment against Jerusalem, 
Matthew 23, 37 to 39, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her out. Often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house has left you desolate, for I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That is taken from Psalm 118, 26, indicating that when the Jews as a corporate body call upon Jesus to save them, then he will come and establish the kingdom, but until then it has been uh, postponed. Following that, the disciples say, well, what are the signs of your coming? How will we know that this is going to take place? And this is described in Matthew chapter 24 and 25. Matthew 24 and 25 is the next section, uh, the fifth section uh, in, the, in, the, in the book, which describes the postponement and eventual establishment of the kingdom. And here he describes the uh, times of the future, uh, the future uh, tribulation period and the final acceptance of, uh, by the Jews of Jesus as the Son of Man. It's, it's indicated by several parables that are important to understand these are related to Israel, not to the church. The parable of the uh, ten virgins emphasizes there that they should be ready for him to return. The parable of the talents uh, emphasizes that the Messiah has the right to uh, distribute uh, rewards on the basis of faithfulness. And then the last parable has to do with the sheep and the goat judgments, emphasizing that until the kingdom comes, it is a responsibility of Gentiles to support and uh, take care of God's people, uh, the Jews. Then in chapter 26 through chapter 28, we come to the last section, the sixth section, which deals with the crucifixion, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In, in uh, chapters 26 to 27:32, there's the description of all of the events that go up to the cross, uh, the plot uh, to crucify Jesus, his anointing by Mary at Bethany, uh, Judas's betrayal, uh, the last Passover, the last supper observance, and the establishment of the Lord's table. Uh, Jesus predicts Peter's uh, threefold denial of him. Then there is his, his time in Gethsemane, the arrest in Gethsemane, followed by the trials of Jesus. There are five trials mentioned in Matthew. Uh, there were actually six, but Matthew only focuses on five of them. And then in chapters 27, 33 through 56, Matthew shows that his death is in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies with citations from Psalm 22, 1 and Psalm 69, 21. His death is also accompanied by several supernatural manifestations. In Matthew 27, 51, the veil of the temple is ripped in two from top to bottom. Matthew 27, 52, graves around Jerusalem are opened and many of the bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep or died are resurrected and walk about Jerusalem, uh, appearing to many and, of course, testifying to the identity of Jesus. Still, Israel does not repent. Uh, Matthew 27:54. in contrast to the negative volition of the Jews, the Gentile centurion looks at what happens on the cross and says, surely this was the Son of God. He's buried for uh, three days and three nights and based on the sign of Jonah. And then on early on Sunday morning, we have the story of the resurrection of Christ, which uh, vindicates and validates his death uh, on the cross. 
as he appears to his disciples at the end, he then gives them a final mission as described in Matthew 28, uh, 19 and 20, just as he had come teaching and healing, now they are to go and bapt, make disciples, which means to make students or train others in the teaching of the righteousness related to our future role in the kingdom, make disciples of all the nations by baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is represents evangelism and bringing them to an understanding of the gospel of salvation, that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone, and then teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Matthew is a gospel that's not written to evangelize Jews, though it could be used for that purpose, but to Jews who are already uh, saved, have already accepted Jesus as the Messiah, to affirm the fact that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, that he did come to, uh, to, to offer the kingdom, that that kingdom, that offer was, post, was rejected, and so the kingdom is postponed. And so it is a challenge to them as it is to us that we now, living in the church age, are to live in light of our future role and destiny in the messianic kingdom. And so there's tremendous amount of practical application that we'll see as we go through Matthew, as well as just having that affirmation of our belief that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. Next time we'll come back and we'll begin our study of the arrival, the presentation of the king with his birth. So next week we'll get into some, we may put that off a couple of weeks. Next week we need to deal with some more introductory issues and then we'll go forward from there. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning. Uh, we pray that you would challenge us with what we've studied, that our faith may be strengthened, our understanding of the truth of your word may be affirmed, and that we might come to a greater understanding in this study of who our Lord Jesus Christ is and what he taught. Father, we pray that you would uh, make the gospel very clear to anyone here who is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny. Salvation is not dependent upon who we are, what we've done, or what we might do. It's based upon Jesus' death on the cross. The issue is very clear in Scripture. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. That's all that's necessary. You don't need to do anything else in order to... Uh, make sure you're saved other than to believe that Jesus died on the cross for you. At that instant, you're, you're given God's righteousness, declared justified, you're regenerate, and that salvation can never be taken from you. Now, Father, we pray, pray that you would strengthen us from what we've studied in your word today. In Christ's name, amen.